0: Coming up this hour, Chris Evans, John MacArthur, and then we're joined the rest of the hour by Mark Galley. You're listening to The Common Good. Hey, everyone. Welcome to The Common Good. It is good to be with you today on this beautiful Monday. We had a bummer of a weekend, and it uh, feels like we're getting rewarded, or payback, or what's the word I want there? We get <laughs> Rewarded, I think, yeah. Rewarded for, for suffering through. I was going to say penance, but we're going to have a conversation later in the hour about Mark Galley's conversion from Protestantism to Catholicism. And I'm not that clever. I'm just going to process all of this out loud in real time while we're all just waiting for Ian to move on with the show. A couple of things you can find us on Facebook, the Common Good Radio Show or 1160hope.com. Plus, we're podcasted and subscribing, rating, reviewing helps us out a whole bunch. I want to ask you how you're doing, Brian, but we got to move because I got 14 stories I want to tackle in this first segment. All right, I'm ready. Oh, but you're not. But I want to know how you are, though. I also care about you.
1: I am really good. Like you said, beautiful weather out. I'm excited. My my Giants play tonight, so football's back. I ha- was thinking of you, the Detroit Lions fan, yesterday. Jeez, my apologies. Louise. That what? was awful, man. But no, great weekend. And uh, like you said, it's always nice when it's beautiful and sunny. Outside.
0: I'm going to tell you about that game a little later because I was a little preemptive with some of my uh, online posting. Yes, you were. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So uh, we got a few stories. You want to tackle this first one? Yeah, I hadn't seen this one. Chris
1: Evans, uh, he accidentally put a picture on Twitter uh, that, uh, let's just say, was a little more revealing of himself than I'm sure than he
0: meant. Well, it wasn't Twitter, uh, it was Instagram. And that's okay. That's really, all you got to do is read the headline. I thought it was interesting that Chris Evans accidentally leaks a nude pic on Instagram, but fans rallied to his defense, given that we just were talking about another prominent leader and Instagram Just a few weeks prior, just anecdotally thought, well, isn't that interesting how how different the reactions have been online, given those uh, given that the platform was the same, you know,
1: and the people came to his defenses instead of doing what we'd expect people to just share things and rip them. So, yeah, no, some goodness out there.
0: Uh, This next one here. I don't know if you saw this one defying uh, county judges order. Grace Community Church in Sun Valley host packed Sunday service. If you are just joining us, that's John MacArthur's church. So right. there was uh, about four or five different articles I read this weekend about these new orders. And then sort of like a will they, won't they? Turns out uh, they did still meet. And yep. I, I've been dying to know your thoughts about all that, Brian.
1: So and, and MacArthur, I believe his son posted a picture on Twitter from the service, man. I'm not I'm not joking when I say shoulder to shoulder pack, right. not a mask. It would be seen. Right. Uh, and again, it feels like it's just getting ramped up here. Uh, this is now it's his thing. It's like, we're going to fight and we're the true church and we're going to fight the the government. So you knew when the government said, came, the judge came back and said, you can't meet that. That wasn't going to happen. I don't know how this ends up. Uh, but in fact, MacArthur seems to be getting emboldened along the way here. Uh, and there are more, I'm starting to feel like a little bit, not in the minority, because I don't agree with what he's doing, either just kind of flouting it, but also the pictures I saw made me really uncomfortable, just to be honest with you. Uh, But, man, you start looking at the comments, and I start to be like, am I in the minority here? Yeah. (laughs) And I know I'm not, but – there's
0: a lot of people who agree with them
1: right now. And MacArthur, I think, is just going to keep up. In fact, I think he's getting emboldened with each week that that their service is meeting.
0: Okay, so a couple of other things that are, are more in the news. And I guess I probably should have teed this up. We don't typically do segments like this, but a lot happened over the weekend. And I wanted to at least yeah. to touch on it. Again, this is a good plug for the Facebook page. If any of these stories that we're sort of barely touching right now, you would love for us to take a deeper dive on later in the week. Let us know. We'd be happy to do that. Uh, this is one that I saw a bunch of people posting a hundred thousand dollar reward offered in ambush shooting of two deputies in Los Angeles County. Did you see any of this?
1: Oh, I did. And it is
2: heartbreaking.
1: It's a heartbreaking, it doesn't make the story more heartbreaking, but the difficult part is that there's video of it, right? Like I'm sure you've seen that video of somebody literally just walking up to a cop car. What that was just sitting there and ambushing them. And it's a 31 year old mother and a 24 year old man uh, both of them police officers who are they look like they're going to make it, but they're in trouble. Like it's they're they're struggling for their lives. And it is so tragic. And then, you know, I don't even know what stories to believe about what people were chanting outside the hospital. It's just another reminder yeah. of just how dark things are right now at certain points. It's just so hard. And uh, I, if, if you can't denounce this when well, nobody's saying they can but this has to not only be denounced, but these people, these, these police officers, we need to be praying for them. And man, something needs to change just culturally where there just seems like violence all over the place getting ramped up. Maybe it's not getting ramped up. Maybe it's just that it's all on video these days, but it's that video was heartbreaking to watch.
0: Oh, it's terrifying. Horrific. I it like, honestly, made me nauseous. It was yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So, Uh, All right, two more, and we'll end on a positive note, I promise. So this one, I saw a lot of people posting about this. Black Lives Matter co-founder denounces Pat Robertson for saying that the movement is anti-God. This is one that's getting a lot of traffic on the Facebook page right now. Any, Any thoughts, Brian? I know we only have like a minute or so.
1: Yeah, it's hard to do in a minute or so, right? Like we have talked about there are some differences. We would like to differentiate Black Lives Matter, the concept from the movement or from the organization, I should say. Um, but also, I also am not sure that Pat Robertson needs to be weighing in on everything, right? Like, this is kind of his thing to be weighing in on everything, and hmm. uh, you know, kind of stirring things up. And so, it has gotten people going because uh, he spoke out about, against Black Lives Matter on his show, saying that the movement wants to destroy Chris- Christianity by accusing the religion of being racist. Uh, you know, there's a lot more nuance to the discussion. I'll put it that way and leave it at that. This is probably worthy of a much longer discussion, but there's one that discussion's happening on our Facebook page if you want to go check it out right now. Yeah,
0: maybe, I think you're right. Now that I'm even, you know, hearing you kind of respond to it, we probably will dedicate another segment to this later in the week. But I wanted to end not only on some good news, but some Chicago news. Chicago Church pays off $19 million in medical debt for area residents. Give us a quick flyover of this awesome story.
1: I mean, this story is crazy. Like you said, Vive Church, V-I-V-E, or Vive Chicago, a non-denominational church that is one of many Vive campuses across the country, raised $100,000 to pay off area residents' medical bills. We've talked about this program called RIP Medical Debt that, like, for pennies on the dollar, you could pay off stuff. So they turned that $100 basically into paying off $19 million in medical debt. And that's just the church just shining, right? Like, right. that's great. I know nothing about Vive Church or Vive Chicago. But what I do know is they put their money where their mouth is and paid off an unbelievable amount of medical debt. So they, they deserve to be lauded for
0: that. And I've been reading more and more stories like these from churches around the country. And I my hat's off to you. I think it's not only not only is it a great thing to do, but it's, it's creative. It's tackling like a really specific and timely need. Props to Vibe and Lead Pastor uh, Adam Small Smallcomb, is that right? Yeah. And uh, yep. we'd love to know what you think of stories and everything that we just mentioned. That's over on our Facebook page, The Common Good Radio Show. Coming up next, though, you are in for a real treat. Mark Galley is going to return to the show. He's been on the show a number of times. He's always incredibly gracious, but he's recently been on the headlines because he uh, just moved from his Protestant roots and joined the Catholic Church. So he's going to join us for the rest of the hour Talk a bit about that in his upcoming book here on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Frommack. And I am thrilled that for the rest of the hour, we're going to be joined by one of our very first three peep guests on the show, Mark Galley. Welcome back to the show, sir. And good to be with you guys. Would you just take a minute or two or five, if you want, and just simply introduce yourself to our audience again?
2: Yeah, I was a Presbyterian pastor for 10 years in my uh, younger life. (laughs) Then I uh, became a journalist working at Christianity Today offices. First were a magazine called Leadership, then Christian History, and then I ended my stint there as editor-in-chief of the flagship magazine, Christianity Today. Mm Mm-hmm. And then I retired in uh, January of this year. So wow. I'm just learning how to do the retirement thing. <laughs> <laughs> Amidst a pandemic. Exactly. Yeah, right. Yeah. That was a little challenging at first. But being an introvert, that worked out okay with for me.
1: So. <laughs> well, Mark, we're grateful for you coming back on. All sorts of questions about retirement and everything. But anyone who uh, – probably people have seen on Twitter, Facebook, some news this week. You were back in the news uh, for an interesting thing, and all the headlines kind of said, a ed- former editor of Christianity Day being confirmed in the Catholic Church, and we really are excited to talk to you about this. But more so, I'm just con- uh, uh, wondering, Did you were you surprised that it was such big news that people cared? Were you surprised that it was getting headlines like this?
2: Uh, not well, – I knew it would get some – it would stir some waters because uh, the last uh, major evangelical to convert to Catholicism was Frank Beckwith. Mm-hmm. He was a president of the Evangelical Theological Society, so that that caused some some waves. So I knew that as editor in chief of Christianity Today, uh, that would as well. Uh, as you well know, I gained some notoriety. I'm not particularly happy with with the editorial I wrote on Donald Trump in December. So actually, the headline of that story by the RNS writer. Was uh, former editor in chief and tr- Trump critic. <laughs> <laughs> oh, gosh. So I'm I'm really sorry that that's my legacy now because anyone who's <laughs> followed me knows I just don't think politics are all that important. And the editorial, in fact, wasn't political. It was moral. It was a moral argument. Right. But that's that's what I'm known as now. So because of that notoriety, I think it got more attention than normal. That's interesting.
0: I I was uh, I was just having coffee with my friend Jason and I told him that we were going to have this conversation. And I said, what what would you ask him? Jason leads a ministry at Willow Creek called The Practice. And he said, oh, so many questions. But the one that I would love to hear and I would love to ask you now is why do you think so many Protestants are so skeptical of our Catholic brothers and sisters?
2: Well, some of it is uh, due to misinformation, I will say, uh, because one of the things I explored and as I explored the Catholic Church is just uh, uh, myths and fables about the Catholic Church uh, began to fall left and right. Now, I'm not saying that everything that we understand about how Catholics come at things, uh, they do believe in the infallibility infallibility of the Pope when he speaks on matters of dogma, which happens very, very seldom, but it's still a, it's still a doctrine, right? They do in fact, uh, pray to Mary and the saints. So these are things, these are, su- you know, substantive differences, right? But when it comes to things like, um, justification by faith, for example, and what the importance of faith and the, uh, the, the reliance on God's mercy and the reliance on God's initiative, uh, Many Protestants are living living in a previous century because uh, Catholics have been, become very clear about this. Uh, in 1999, they had a they had an accord with Lutherans. It's a Lutheran Catholic accord. It's a creative title. Uh, <laughs> but in in that they say things like this, and I called it up because I figured that would come up in this conversation. So you know, you know, it's one of these doctrines. Every every paragraph has a number. So paragraph 15. In faith, together, we hold the conviction that justification is the work of the triune God. Hmm. The Father sent his Son into the world to save sinners. The foundation and presupposition of justification is the incarnation, death, and resurrection of Christ. Hmm. Justification thus means that Christ himself is our righteousness, in which we share through the Holy Spirit in accord with the will of the Father. Together, we confess by grace alone in faith Hmm. in Christ's, Saving work and not because of any merits on our part, we are accepted by God and receive the Holy Spirit. Mm. So that that now there is still, not, not, to be honest, there are still some different emphases that uh, Lutherans and Catholics hold. Right, but this notion that they are a works righteousness uh, phenomenon is is just simply false, mm. uh, and people, one of the reasons people are suspicious of it, because they still live with this notion that Catholics really don't believe in grace when mm. it's just not the case. In fact, every time I, I go to confession, which is, you know, maybe once a month, every other week, depending on, depending on the state of my soul. <laughs> um, uh, that's the, the whole tone of the conversation with the priest is that we're in the presence of a merciful God. Mm. Um, so, that would be one reason uh, that I think there is a deep suspicion because there still is some deep misunderstanding about some core issues up, upon which we split uh, five centuries ago.
1: Yeah. Mark, as much as you're comfortable, could you just give, walk us through the journey? How long have you been thinking about this? Uh, what's that journey been like for you over the last months, I'm assuming last couple of years here?
2: Yeah. Uh, without going into... Uh, a boring detail, which I will do <laughs> in my book. <laughs> but I do like to help people fall asleep at night. So, <laughs> um, Probably a key moment happened when I was editor of Christian History and I was editing an issue on St. Francis. I mean, we edited issues, Protestant, Catholic, uh, individuals, movements, but it was an issue on St. Francis. And I was, one cannot help but be deeply impressed by his devotion, his sacrifice, his just absolute, riveting attention on Christ and how to live a life of poverty for Christ. And then in the evenings, because I'm an amateur theologian, I always have my head in some contemporary theological work, uh, keep me up to date. I was reading John Paul II's encyclical called Veritatis Splendor, or the Splendor of Truth. Mm -hmm. And it's a brilliant philosophical theological treatise. Yes. And it it just imbued with a Catholic sensibility. And I thought to myself one evening as I was reading that, the same church produced this kind of mystical, devoted, passionate follower of Jesus, who was not an intellectual by any stretch of the imagination. He wasn't stupid, but he wasn't he wasn't interested in things intellectual. And then this great mind, John Paul II's mind. Uh, And that just made, that just intrigued me deeply. And I just wanted to explore that more. And I began to explore it over the, over the next few years. I knew that as editor at Christianity Today, uh, I couldn't become Catholic. And it wasn't like Mm. I was afraid that I would get fired if I became a Catholic, uh, because I knew I had enough experience in the editing world, I could find another job, Mm. perhaps in the Catholic world, being an editor. But I did pray about it. And I, uh, you know, it's an old fashioned kind of, it's a corny evangelical phrase, but, When you experience it, it's really true. I did not feel like I was released from Christianity today yet. Hmm. Every time I prayed about it, I just got this sense. I have work for you to do at Christianity today. So just shut up and mind your own business. (laughs) 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 Do the work I've called you to do. This doesn't mean I wasn't exploring and reading and thinking and praying uh, at the same time. Hmm. But uh, I knew I was doing it in the context of my work at Christianity today. And so... I suppose a key moment came toward the end of my tenure. I was reading a book called uh, Catholicism by uh, Bishop Robert Barron. Mm -hmm. And um, the second time I read it, well, I read it. I I listened to most books by listening to them audibly while I'm driving or exercising. And uh, um, when I got to the end of the book, uh, the last chapter was so beautifully written it was about the, the variety in the Catholic Church, the variety of mystics and intellectuals and poor and rich and liberals and conservatives. I was weeping so hard I had to pull off to the side of the road because I couldn't see straight. Wow. Mm. That was probably the moment internally that I was... I said, I've got to, I've just got to move in this direction somehow. That's so good.
0: That third voice you're hearing, by the way, is Mark Galley, former editor at Christianity Today. And he has recently, I think as recent as yesterday, officially joined the Catholic Church. We're going to ask him more about that and his upcoming book for the rest of the hour here on The Common Good on AM 1160. (laughs) Hey everyone. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm. Absolutely thrilled. Mark, you truly are one of the most gracious guests we've ever had. And I, I appreciate your candor, your honesty. It's, it's so refreshing, actually, to hear a bit of your journey because it's a journey that I've actually heard from a, a number of people learning about. One, you mentioned some of the myths about Catholicism that often kind of get you know, spun out of control. And two, you were mentioning just before the break, some of the rich diversity that you were reading and hearing and experiencing. And I remember years ago, I started an organization called Beauty in the Common. And a lot of that was launched from understanding uh, transcendentalism, the transcendentals of the Catholic Church, truth, goodness, and, and beauty. And uh-huh. realizing that I hadn't heard a whole lot from an evangelical perspective of the role of, of beauty, of captivation, of awe and that for me, being a very, very stirring kind of thing. Can you tell us a little bit more? You mentioned you were listening to Father Barron. What What are some of the things that you were hearing or experiencing in your reading and research that were you just found to be captivating in your journey?
2: Yeah, I think it was uh, the, the formal phrase is the catholicity of the church that hmm. always deeply impressed me. In fact, in my Confirmation service, there was just a, uh, an example of it. It was a service held in, in jo- Joliet, uh, Illinois, which is a little east uh, east and southeast of Chicago. And uh, the service was conducted in both English and Spanish. Hmm. And when I've traveled and, and gone to churches, Catholic churches elsewhere, I've been to Fil- a Filipino church. There's a uh, There are uh, uh, Burmese who worship at our church uh, at St. Michael's in Wheaton. Uh, and then, of course, you have the gamut of uh, the wealthy people and blue blue collar people, and you've got conservatives and liberals, and you've got both politically and theologically. Uh, and then, when Bishop Barron was talking about, that, he was talking about people like Dorothy Day, who was, mm-hmm. frankly, a socialist, if not an, not not an, if not an anarchist. Right. You know what that means uh, politically. Uh, and then you've got very conservative people like well. It's hard to pinpoint him, but G.K. Chesterton, it would be in a different mm-hmm. world altogether than her. Uh, uh, you've got some strong conservative Catholics politically, like in the, at the First Things world. Uh, you've got, and, you, and yet you've got some people who are still following, who practicing the Catholic uh, social doctrine in the world, trying to bring justice to the world. Mm-hmm. It's just an amazing collection and you will, you will find this in the protestant world but you'll find it in different denominations <laughs> <laughs> but they have a hard time living together and the thing i like right. about catholicism is there's no notion that we're all living happily and love each other and everything is wonderful but we've all agreed to live within this organic institutional thing hmm. this real thing together and to abide by its disciplines as much as possible hmm. Uh, And that's a a really – one of the things I'm exploring in the book is why is that so powerful for me? Because it isn't powerful Mm. for everyone. But for me, it's really powerful. Mm.
1: Uh, In uh, Ed Stetzer's article that he wrote uh, kind of about what you were talking about in Christian data the other day, he he quoted you, or at least put words in your mouth here, where he said – uh, for Galley, part this was part of it, but his fatigue with evangelicalism contributed as well. Can you talk about that part of the article where he talks about your fatigue with evangelicalism? Yeah. Uh, well, what is that fatigue? And maybe just—I know you have a love for the evangelical church. What are some things that you hope uh, the evangelical church will learn?
2: Yeah. The only part of the—he uh, was referring to an article by uh, Religious News Service by Gennad uh, Shimron, who gotcha. uh, interviewed me and wrote the profile. And she originally did the interview last, uh, February before the COVID thing hit, because there was a feeling I was going to be, uh, confirmed in April. So she wanted to get the story together. And that was just after I retired. So I think she rightly characterized the mood I was in the day she interviewed me. (laughs) (laughs) I had just retired. I had just gone through the whole Trump thing. Yeah. And I was literally exhausted. I was mentally fried. Hmm. And all I could think about were all the controversies I'd had as editor-in-chief and how tired I was yeah. at being the butt of everyone's, uh, you know, opinion. <laughs> hmm. And then just how easily on the internet and on Twitter things are taken out of context. Right. And so, yeah, there was a real tiredness and fatigue uh, at that moment. That mm-hmm. uh, that It's kind of been healed over the last few months, and I wouldn't say that I wouldn't say that my motive for becoming a Catholic is is po- mostly negative in nature. I'm tired of the divisiveness. Hmm, right. But I will say, factually speaking, I, I've always been disturbed by the divisiveness in the Protestant church. Yeah. Hmm. Uh, you know, if you don't agree with someone on uh, whether you should sing in church or not sing in church or whether uh, women can be elders or not elders or whatever, whatever the issue is. Rather than try to work it out and live together, we just say, "I'm just going to start a new church yeah, right right <laughs> and now we have depending on who you count who, whose numbers you count, at least twenty thousand, if not thirty thousand Protestant denominations and it's just yeah. it you know, I think back to Jesus prayer in John seventeen it's it, that prayer is his last in a sense his last will and testament yeah. it's his last prayer before he goes to the cross mm. and the one thing he says at the end of that prayer and he repeats it over and over. That he prays that his disciples will be one, hmm. even as the father, you Father, and I are one. and he says that three or four times right mm-hmm. Unity is really important to Jesus he in fact he doesn't say now I don't, I don't want to deny the importance of truth, but he does what's really interesting he doesn't say he doesn't say keep them in the truth, keep their keep their doctrines right right make sure they understand correctly the Word of God rightly divided. no, he says, Make sure they stay one, Lord mm. <laughs> Father uh, and so that's a that to me is a really crucial passage in my own kind of journey that uh, I, that I've you know kind of been thinking about and I feel like I, I can have some semblance of that in the Catholic Church now yep. again, I just want to make it clear I don't think doctrines unimportant. I'm a right. doctrinal guy, man right. mm-hmm. I'm a theologian from day one. I love that stuff, but Jesus seemed to think there was one more thing more important than that.
0: <laughs> so that's good. I've, I've heard it said actually that John 17 is the real Lord's prayer. That the Lord's prayer that we know is arguably the disciples' prayer when they were at, yeah. when they asked, "Teach us exactly. to pray." But His prayer, right. the prayer of ecumenism, right in John 17. And to your point about divisions in the Protestant Church, uh, maybe the snarkiest tweet I've ever posted. I said something like. The Bible is really clear. Thirty-three thousand denominations can't all be wrong, or something like that. <laughs> which is, I, I think it's, I think that's a real, it's a really important component because uh, you know, and I, I grew up in a family where my whole mom side are, are uh, charismatic Roman Catholics, and I didn't know that that was even an option. And and we've shared beautiful conversations together over the course of twenty years, which has given me such respect and appreciation for the Catholic Church. One of the things that you say in the religion news article that I loved. He said, one thing I like about both orthodoxy and Catholicism is that you have to do these things whether you like it or not, whether you're in the mood or not, and sometimes whether you believe or not. Can you, can you tell me a little bit more about that sentiment right there?
2: Yeah, I think one of the things that, that, that is attractive to me about the Catholic Church is that you're submitting not just your, your, your soul and your body, so to speak, but your mind as well. You are mm. basically coming into a – you're putting yourself in a posture of humility, so that uh, – and I've to be frank, I've kind of done this with every denomination or church I've been a part of. When I became a Presbyterian, I wanted to abide by uh, Presbyterian sensibilities. I want to understand what it means to be a Presbyterian. What does it mean to believe as a Presbyterian? How does, mm-hmm. how does one act as a Presbyterian? The same thing was true of the Anglican communion. Uh, I just think it's really important to enter into something bigger than yourself and have a posture of humility and say – I want this bigger thing to shape me. Mm -hmm. I don't want to be here constantly raising my fist against it. Mm -hmm. And so to become a Catholic, there's nobody that can become a Catholic and all all of a sudden your faith is absolutely pristine and you believe everything heartily that the Catholic Church teaches and practices. Mm -hmm. That's just impossible. Mm -hmm. But what you do promise is that you will put yourself under the teaching of the Church, more specifically the bishops and the teaching office of the Church, and those things which you find hard to believe, you will prayerfully try to understand what they what they're saying, mm. and with God's help, c- try to come to believe them. That's so good.
0: That other voice you're hearing is Mark Galley. He's been gracious enough to stick around for the entire hour talking not only about his previous role at Christianity today, but his journey from Protestantism to Catholicism. And he's sticking around for just one more segment as we continue that conversation here on the Common Good on AM eleven sixty. <laughs> Hey everyone, welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins along with Brian Fromm. You can find us all over the World Wide Web. I'm not going to bore you with all the details. You can just search it and hopefully something will come up. And uh, really, really grateful for Mark Galley. sticking around for a third segment as we talk not only about his previous role as editor at Christianity Today, but his most recent journey from Protestantism to Catholicism. And, and Mark, I was mentioning a little earlier that my mom's side of the family are Roman Catholics. And my uncle and I have had numerous conversations where he's told me that people have accused him of being the most Protestant Catholic they know. And I said, that's (laughs) funny because people have accused me of being the most Catholic Protestant they know. (laughs) But that's, but that's created a real bond though, where we've been able to have long discussions about the things that we disagree with, but also finding out how much we have in common, how much unity there actually is there. I'd love to know, what major hurdles did you face in this journey? Were there were there certain points of doctrine that, as a Protestant, you thought, "Oh, I don't know that I'm ready to to embrace that or let go of this just yet." Do any come to mind for you?
2: Well, uh, not really, because I understood that when you become a Catholic, you're you're you have to go through a kind of a gestalt, a mind shift, hmm. and it's no longer a matter of. Okay, here's what I believe, and does the Catholic Church line up with I, what I believe? And where does it line up, and where does it not line up? Uh, it's more a matter of uh, is this, as far as I understand, the uh, you know the the original Church of Jesus Christ? Hmm. Am I called to be a part of it, and then to submit to its discipline, or not? And once that decision is made. Uh, it's not a matter of a doctrine making me stumble, but it's a matter of saying, oh, yeah, that's a little, Hmm. that's going to be kind of hard to believe. But if the church teaches it, I'm going to do my best to try to figure out how to believe it. Hmm. Um, and it, it doesn't mean, you know, the other thing it doesn't mean is that you just are abjectly humble and you never disagree or you never raise questions. Uh, a lot of people are raising questions in the Catholic church about a lot of different things. Women's ordination right. and it would be one, one aspect. And I, but so in the church, but one does it in a certain context, then hmm. uh, one doesn't demand that the church change, but the one, one can say, can we discuss this doctrine? Can the bishops come together and discuss this idea? That's causing a lot of people uh, doubts and discouragements. Hmm. And the fact of the matter is uh, Cardinal Newman, uh, a great, Catholic writer from the 19th century uh, reminded the church that uh, there is some something called the development of doctrine. That is to say, as Catholics wrestle with the various and sundry teachings of the church, their doctrine develops. It doesn't contradict previous uh, doctrines, but it brings out a fuller manifestation. The Lutheran Catholic uh, dialogue would be an example of that, right. where there the Catholics. A teaching on justification by faith was, in fact, fairly confusing in, in the 1500s. <laughs> Over the last 400 years, as the theologians have worked it out, they've come to an understanding that's very similar to to the Lutheran doctrine. So, in submitting oneself to the to the church, it doesn't mean you're just ab you're just waving the white flag. It also means you are, if you're going to engage in disagreement, you do it in a, with a certain humble posture and you do it with patience hmm. because sometimes it takes 500 years <laughs> for the church to come to a greater understanding of something. Yeah.
1: I'm wondering, do you, we do a lot of talking about the kind of the next generation and their faith and evangelicalism and this and that. Do you hear from people or do you suspect that there'll be a movement, a lot of people doing what you're doing uh, and, I'm just curious, as you look forward, if you think this is going to be a more common thing. Uh,
2: right now, probably not. Um, I do know that for every uh, convert to Catholicism, I think four or five Catholics are leaving the church. So the church is in a pretty uh, difficult straight right now. Now, of course, I'm not overly anxious about that because I know that the Lord is in charge of his church. and uh, And second, a lot of those Catholics... I mean, there there is a weeding out process of every denomination when they go through this sort of thing. Um, And so one hopes that those who remain will be more devout and more faithful in their Catholicism and will be a better witness to the world of what Catholicism is about. Mm. Uh, So, And right now, I think young people are deeply suspicious of institutional religion altogether. And so Catholic Church is one of the most institutional religions (laughs) ever. (laughs) Right, right. So uh, it will not immediately attract uh, a lot of young people who who feel like they want the freedom to believe whatever they want, to pick and choose, to be cafeteria religionists, so to speak. I think what they're going to find over time, however, though, that all they are ending up doing is believing in a religion that they've created themselves. Hmm. It's not something bigger than themselves. It's as small of them. It's as small as themselves. Hmm. And I think at some point that trend will shift, and people will realize if I'm really going to grow and mature as a person, I have to give myself to something bigger than myself. And I'm hopeful that some people will choose the Catholic Church as, the, as part of that. Hmm. My uh,
0: my friend and mentor, Doctor John Armstrong, is a uh... He's referred to by some as sort of the father of missional ecumenism, and he's someone whose journey has been fascinating to me. And In fact, every three years, at least for a while, we would meet at Mundelein Seminary for an ecumenical gathering of Protestants and Catholics, and my first time there moved me to tears because there was a moment where we sat in a circle and we just confessed to one another um, what grieved us about the divisions that we had caused, the harm that we had caused to the other, and it was... Incredibly healing because we didn't walk away singing kumbaya We're like well I guess we agree on everything now like that wasn't the point <laughs> but there was this where well, there wasn't doctrinal ecumenism there was like relational ecumenism I'd love to hear from you because your perspective and journey is so unique what is some of your hope for this sort of John 17 type unity and ecumenism and and maybe even what's like one or two things that someone listening right now could actually practically do to take a step toward that kind of
2: unity. Well, I do think we are at a moment when we can have these conversations in a way that's uh, both uh, uh, confessional, but also affirming, and have some real honest dialogue with one another. Mm. I mean, my local parish priest, among the people he quotes most often is C.S. Lewis. Mm. (laughs) Uh, So there, and there is a genuine respect for, in the Catholic Church, for our brothers and sisters uh, in the separated churches. They really are brothers and sisters. And there's a recognition that some of them are are fantastic Christians whom Catholics should admire. Hmm. Uh, and, and I think you, like, you, like you're saying, it's just the opposite as well. There's many Protestants now are recognizing that Catholics can have a very vibrant uh, love of Jesus and do things sacrificial for him that they can only admire from a distance. So uh, John, and uh, it's funny, you should mention John Armstrong. We're having lunch tomorrow. Yes. Together. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. I love it. So so I love the work he's doing. Um, I think that's one important way of living out Jesus' uh, prayer on John uh, 17 is to, on the Protestant side, to do everything in your power to understand Catholics, Orthodox, people of other Protestant denominations, uh, it's. It took us 500 years to get to this point where we're so fractured. Hmm. I wouldn't be surprised if it took us a thousand years to get back together. But it happens as we engage people of different Christian faiths hmm. and honestly try to listen to what they believe, why they believe it, and just look at each other and say, huh, I hadn't thought of it that way. Yeah. Or yeah. I see where you're coming from. I come from a different place. Here's why. Yeah. And just to have... It's just old fashioned really good listening conversation. It's just amazing how powerful that is. Yeah.
1: Mark, we're so grateful you came on. I look forward to the feedback we hear. I, you you never do shy away, so we're really excited <laughs> about that. We're <laughs> grateful for that. Hey, with the last minute we have, you mentioned a book. Uh, I'd love to know what's the what's the book about? When's it coming out? What what could we be looking forward to with this book?
2: Yeah, so it's book it's, it's partly written for myself to help me understand why is, is that I have become a Catholic. What is it it about these various things that attract me? Why do they attract me? So part of it's autobiographical. Some of it will be, of course, apologetic, because I'm a new convert. I want other people to become Catholics, too. (laughs) Uh, But also, it's an explanation I have, you know, uh, through my writing and through my work at Christianity Today. I might have, I don't know, five to 10,000 people that are pretty faithful followers of everything I write, and I feel I owe them an explanation. So... I'm about two-thirds of the way done, and the way book publishing works, it probably will be a year before it comes out. Maybe sooner, but we'll see. That's wonderful.
0: Mark, Mark, just to say it out loud again, I'm so grateful for you and your perspective, your posture, and you're just an incredibly gracious host. Thank you for joining us today.
2: Thank you. I appreciate the opportunity. It's our pleasure.
0: You're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Coming up this hour, we're going to talk some COVID news, some Jeff Bezos, and we're going to end talking a little bit about self-care. You're listening to The Common Good. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins along with Brian Fromm. If you are just joining us live on the radio right now, I cannot encourage you enough to go back and listen to the podcast, mainly our interview with Mark Galley. I think incredibly insightful very balanced. I think he brings he just talks about things in a very like measured but also academic sort of way and sure. I I appreciate that balance. Like it feels pastoral but it also feels like oh this is a guy who has probably, you know, written more books than I've read kind of thing. That's uh yep. That's the general vibe that I, I tend to get. So go back and listen to that. You can also find a bunch of discussions happening right now on our Facebook page, the Common Good Radio Show. We highly encourage you to weigh in on any of those articles there. And uh, you can also find us on Instagram and Twitter at Common Good Talk. I want to talk a little bit of COVID news, Brian, if that's OK with you. It is. Um, from kind of two perspectives. So one is about the uh, possibility of a vaccine vaccine. And the other one is one that you found, and the headline simply reads, Billionaires Won Corona. So let's start first with the vaccine, and then we'll sort of veer into this uh, part two here. So why don't you give us a little bit of a flyover from this NBC News one?
1: Yes, as you said, it's at NBC News. Pharmaceutical giant AstraZeneca will resume its coronavirus vaccine trial in the UK, the company said on Saturday after pausing the trials last week when a participant Became ill last week. A voluntary pause to vaccination across all global trials was triggered after a participant fell uh, fell ill. AstraZeneca said, adding that it couldn't disclose medical information about the unwell participant for confidentiality reasons. And so, I think this story is interesting for a couple different reasons. One, it's good news that uh, they took the pause. Right? They always said they're gonna they're gonna do this methodically, and when their you know red flags come up, they're gonna pause. So they paused. Uh, Got it figured out, and now we're going again. We all want to see these vaccines uh, continue to move forward uh, in a safe manner, uh, but also moving forward. Uh, Secondly, one thing that I found interesting about this man was uh, last week when they paused it, uh, it kind of flew all over, like it led the Today Show when I watched it. Like, hey, the vaccine is in trouble, this and that. And then when they unpaused it, I didn't hear anything about it, and so. I'm not typically one of these guys who's like, oh, the news is only telling you bad news. But I was like, wow, that was pretty different, the the reaction to this. But anyway, once you read it, it's like, "Okay, good news. I hope this works. I hope uh, we all should be cheering this on. They're like, let's let's get to a healthy, uh, effective vaccine as quickly as we possibly can.
0: Yeah. Uh, Is there anything that uh, cautions you about this story?
1: Oh, that any, that along the way, these vaccines are going to, uh, all vaccines, all medicine comes with side effects. Right. And so, yeah. you know, we, the, the goal is it's called operation warp speed. And so the goal is that this gets done really fast. Uh, but we have to remember that anything like a vaccine, uh, if they start cutting corners, if there's political pressure or whatever else it might be, it could be really harmful. And so, uh, you hope that they are still willing to not just pause, but shut these things down if there's huge side effects and this and that it's not so easy as like they start a vaccine and we go through the the stages and then it's ready for everybody like that. They, they do the trials and the stages for reasons. And part of it is you don't know necessarily what the side effects are going to be. And so, you know, fingers crossed that that this was a small bump, but not a big one going forward. But like you said, the the worry is always Uh, what are the side effects of a vaccine? What are the side effects that could be coming? And so that's obviously the worry.
0: The other article that we have here from the Inc simply says, billionaires won Corona. And then it's got a big picture of Jeff Bezos starts by saying, imagine you're just finishing your shift as a picker at an Amazon warehouse all day long. You've been carting items for other people under giant letters on the wall that spell work hard, have fun, make history. The pandemic has been hard on you. You can tell from what people are buying that it's been hard on just about Everybody, But as you come off your shift, you get life-changing news. Jeff Bezos, founder and chief executive at Amazon, has decided to give you a bonus. In fact, he's decided to give every single employee of Amazon, some 876,000 people, a one-time pandemic bonus. A $105,000 bonus. Serious money. The kind of money that, if invested over a couple of decades, would give you a real retirement nest egg. The crazy thing? The money he's giving you... It's merely the extra wealth he gained during the pandemic, wealth that you built. After he has paid out those $92 billion in bonuses, he will still be comfortably off. In fact, as rich as he was before Corona time. Of course, Bezos isn't going to do this, but the fact that he could is one of the striking findings of a new report from Oxfam on Plutoc. Oh boy. What's that word?
1: Plutocratic.
0: Plutocratic, which means what? I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) plutocratic profiteering from the pandemic the report of which the inc got an exclusive preview makes clear that the billionaire class hasn't just fiddled with while rome burns it's made a fortune from the flames i'll stop there do those figures or even that premise surprise you discourage you where do you where do you land in all that
1: uh first of all plutocratic means relating to or characterized by government by the wealthy so there you go i am going
0: to use that later and pretend to sound smart (laughs)
1: Uh, It doesn't surprise me because I've seen a lot of these articles flying around uh, and little caveat here. I can already see our Facebook page calling us socialists and also explaining why we don't understand this. I get it. I'm not an economist. You're not an economist. Uh, There's a difference between money on the, you know, that you actually have versus money, whatever. I get it. The fact still remains. And there's lots of articles flying around right now that uh, that the ultra wealthy have actually gotten wealthier through many of the things in the pandemic, uh, while a lot of people obviously are really suffering in a bad way. And uh, I don't know the answers, right? Like, again, I, I people get, their, uh, get all worked up about, oh, well, socialism isn't the answer, but this isn't the answer. I don't know what the answer is. I just understand why it makes people so angry as they read some of this stuff. And to know that people are, you know, really struggling through the pandemic, and then you read stories about the ultra wealthy getting wealthier. You understand why that's hard to read. Again, if we don't have the answers, that's okay. There's smarter people than us who can figure that out. Uh, But I think all of us should be bothered by a story like this. I think regardless of what you do for a living, I think all of us should be bothered by this and go, I feel like we should probably try to find an answer to something like this.
0: Yeah. Let me read a quote from uh, Kem who's the executive director of Oxfam International saying COVID-19 has been tragic for the many, but good for a privileged few. The economic crisis we are suffering because of the pandemic has been fueled by a rigged economic model. The world's largest corporations are making billions at the expense of low-wage workers and funneling profits to shareholders and billionaires, a small group of largely white men in rich nations. Goes on to mention a bunch of statistics. I don't know do any of these statistics surprise you? And I know again, cards on the table. I understand that you've confessed at uh, same for me that neither of us are economists, but I'd love to know in the minute or so we have left, do you feel any level of, I don't know if conviction is the right word. Does, does your being a Christian at all inform your posture towards things like these?
1: Oh, that's an interesting way to put it. I think it has to, you know, because we've talked many times about, uh, who it is that Jesus, when he was on this earth, uh, who it is that he showed the greatest compassion towards and the greatest care for. So therefore we should feel that way. Where I just struggle is I don't know the answer. Like I, I don't know what to do about it. And, and that's okay for us to say, I don't know the answer, but first this has to bother us or this has to be seen as a problem. I know a lot of people who would disagree with me or us that this is even a problem and try to explain the way worlds work and, and economics work. I understand that, but I think, um, as a Christian, I think this should bother us and at least engage us in conversations as to, okay, what are some answers? What what can happen along the way? Yeah, I do, I do think our, our Christian faith has to inform this discussion.
0: Yeah. And I'd love to know what people think because as I mentioned, we didn't have time to get into the specifics here, but it it lets us in on uh, on some of the circumstances around the world. So this isn't just like a, an issue or a conversation for the West, but I think it's a global one. And I really do mean this. I'd love to know what people think. You can find this and every article over on our Facebook page, The Common Good. And uh, coming up next, kind of keeping this theme with Jeff Bezos. I want to talk about Jeff Bezos and Tim Cook, but for a different reason, for the reason of embracing the rule of awkward silence. That's coming up next here on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, friends, welcome back to The Common Good. Is that Pippa in the background? It
1: is Pippa
0: again. <laughs> Hi, good Pippa. Night. Welcome she, to the show. We missed you. We should, have, we should have Pippa co-host one of these segments. She practically does. <laughs> <laughs> we, should, we should somehow make it a, remember uh, Courage the Cowardly, no, Courage the Insult comic. Wait. That's right. That's right. Is that right? Uh, insult, insult the Comic Dog, I think it was called, right? Or I thought yeah. his name was Courage, though, wasn't it?
1: No, I think it was Insult. Or we could be talking about two different ones but here's how it works I saw my wife I'm upstairs in my bedroom doing the show during the pandemic I saw my wife drive away and now I can see the uh I could see the utility guy on the street and I'm going well my dog's going to bark
0: at it and mm-hmm. sure enough there you go Okay here it is it's Triumph the insult comment dog Yes Oh boy Okay so here's the headline out of ink.com a different ink though from the previous from the different uh, previous site by the way um, Interesting. Yeah, this one is ink like incorporated intelligent minds like Tim Cook and Jeff Bezos embrace the rule of awkward silence. You should too. subheading says the rule of awkward silence has always been valuable, but in a world of instant gratification, it's more useful than ever. Tim Cook and Jeff Bezos run two of the most valuable companies in the world. We were just talking about this in the previous segment. That was intentional from the outside. They seem to exhibit very different personalities, but within their companies, both men are known for a fascinating practice. They each embrace the rule of awkward silence. Uh, as I've described previously, the rule of awkward silence is simple. When faced with a challenging question, instead of answering, you pause and think deeply about how you want to answer. There's no short pause, rather, it involves taking several seconds 10, 20, or longer to think things through before responding. If you're on the receiving end and not used to this type of communication style, it can seem very awkward. I can I can see why. Yes. At Apple, Cook has engaged in the practice for years. Back in 2008, a Fortune article said that in meetings, Cook was known for long, uncomfortable pauses when all you hear is the sound of his tearing the wrapper of the energy bars he's constantly eating. At Amazon, <laughs> Pezos also utilizes the rule of awkward silence, although in a more methodical way. It involves taking time at the beginning of meetings, reportedly up to 30 minutes to read printed memos in silence. The idea is that meeting participants have time to peruse the memo to think and even to scribble notes of initial thoughts and ideas all without interruption for new employees it's a strange initial response bezos once said in another fortune interview they're just not as accustomed to sitting silently in a room and doing study hall with a bunch of executives but these silent starts ensure the undivided attention of participants who may not uh, who may not dedicate the needed time to think through such a memo if it were assigned as preparation i'll stop there what do you what do you think of this principle in general
1: it's really fascinating. Uh, you and I have joked off air, on air, I'm not sure, but I'm <laughs> terrible with silence. <laughs> that that like, is true. I hum, I tap my fingers, I do all sorts of things whenever there's silence. And so even reading this, I'm like, the he starts a meeting for 30 minutes. They all just read the memos to themselves. Like You think of these executives like, that you wouldn't even get 30 minutes in a meeting let alone we're going to spend the first 30 minutes reading over the material right mm-hmm. uh, or or thinking through there's a there's a later an anecdote about Steve Jobs taking uh, a long time to answer even personal attacks just being silent this idea of silence it must have something with these uh, that all these guys put it forth but i struggle with awkward silence so this is really interesting later on it's going to talk about why the rule of awkward silence is more valuable than ever. And it just says, we live in a world that demands instant gratification. Email should be answered on the same day. Slack and text messages should be answered right away. You forgot about the Zoom meeting. No problem. You can still join in the meeting immediately following as well. But there's a major problem with all of this instantaneous communication. It doesn't leave time to think. That's right. Think as in think critically. So I'll put it back on you. Uh, so the awkward silence isn't just to be awkward and to make people uncomfortable, which sometimes that's what awkward silence does is just like let the other person kind of taking control. But this is more, hey, we got to be quiet in order to think and think about our responses. I find this I find this interesting. What are your thoughts on this?
0: Yeah, when I was lead pastor, we would do something not nearly as uh, as formulaic, I guess, as Bezos or Cook. But I did I did remember and I'm I'm the grateful recipient of some really wonderful mentors and educators that helped me kind of process some of this, you know, because like you and I have a talk show, so like talking on the fly is sort of expected oftentimes, not always, but often pastors are communicators and they're, they're comfortable with talking, which means they often talk over each other. And I was realizing that in big staff meetings, I got to hear from all the extroverts, but hardly ever from the introverts because the extroverts were happy to like jump right in and like think while they're talking. And often had great ideas, but sometimes you could tell they were just sort of filling time you know and and it wasn't enough to say, "Hey, introverts, I need you to respond too because they're like well i don't I'm not looking to talk over anybody, so if it's not carved out intentionally then then why bother So we started implementing certain parameters in place so that you could actually get all the ideas on the table and actually hear from your extroverted and introverted your type A and type B, your alpha and your beta like all those things I think were really important, and I was thinking about just as you were reading some of this. When I'm having like a like a deep philosophical discussion with a close friend, I'm really comfortable with silence. Like if if he if he asks me a really thought provoking question, I'm I'm way more comfortable kind of sitting with it for a second and wondering what what do I think about this or how do I feel about mm-hmm. this. But because there's relational equity there, right? There's a, there's a comfort level. On the other hand, if it's a you know you think back to like a first date. Or hmm. uh, meeting new friends or, or maybe even, you know, in a radio show, you're interviewing somebody that you really value or appreciate. There can be this temptation just to go and go and go. And I, uh, and not everyone feels that obviously, but uh, I think that there's, I think there's something really important to this, especially in this like highly digitized age. I think, I think this article is spot on.
1: Yeah, it says later when you embrace the rule of awkward silence, you're actually stealing back time. So you would think it's you're losing time, but he says you're getting back time, time that used to be wasted on nonsense answers, wasted on telling another person what you think they want to hear as opposed to what is truly, uh, what you truly believe. Once you practice it enough, you will no longer find the rule of awkward silence. Well, awkward because while taking an extended pause to think things through may seem strange at first, you'll begin to realize the many advantages it provides. I love articles like this, man, because like I said, I'm not, I don't do well with silence. It's just a general rule of thumb in my life. I don't do well with silence. Even when I'm alone, I'm constantly have the TV on in the background or or I'm listening to music or whatever else it might be. Uh, But this lays out really good reasons to strategically. uh, And again, it's not about taking power or control. It's just hey, one of the ways to get everybody thinking and to get the best answers and the best discussion is to leave space for critical thinking, leave space for time. Uh, I think this could be part of what we do in work, what we do in you know meetings at church or other places, but also just in one-on-one relationship conversations. I think there's a lot to this.
0: Yeah, let me just, as we wrap this up, uh, give us a list. For example, the rule of awkward silence allows you to, and then give some, some examples, put the outside world on mute, exercise your thinking faculties, get to the root problems more effectively, give deeper, more thoughtful answers, bring your emotions into balance, remain in harmony with your values and principles, say what you mean and mean what you say, and increase your confidence. So at the very least, I don't have like a specific challenge or anything, but I, I read this and thought, I want to try and, and incorporate that more intentionally into my life. Maybe not into the show necessarily that might be that might be be strange but uh in general i'd love to know what y'all think of this article and maybe what are some ways that you've kind of grown in this discipline of awkward silence i think that'd be fascinating coming up next a story really two stories of pastors stepping down that's coming up next here on the common good on am 1160 Hey, everyone. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is still Ian Simpkins. His name is still Brian Fromm. Do you want to guess what holiday it is today? We got a few here. Oh, my goodness.
1: I, I wouldn't have the first idea. But just I'm- try.
0: <laughs> just just blindfolded to the dark. Just what what could today possibly be? Uh,
1: today is a National uh, Change Your Tire Day.
0: Wow. <laughs> did you change your tires today, Brian? I did not. Okay. No, so- it's uh, National Cream-Filled Donut Day, National Eat-A-Hogie Day, National oh. Live Creative Day, and National Virginia Day. So props to okay. our many, many listeners over in Virginia. Um, we've, we've talked a good deal, unfortunately, in the last year and a half of pastors even ha- either having to step down or being removed. And it almost always has to do with some kind of scandal, right? Yep. Um I mean, even just anecdotally between you and me and the pastors that we talk to or connect with, if you hear of somebody leaving a church in pastoral ministry, you almost can't help but assume like, oh man, something probably happened, which isn't always the case, but it does. It, that does tend to be what makes the headlines. And there's two different stories. Of pastors stepping down that I wanted to talk about because they're they're unique in that regard. They're not typically for the reasons that you would guess. So, do you want to take this first one out of uh, Christian Post?
1: Yeah, the the juxtaposition. I really like that you put these together because, like you said, the juxtaposition between the two is striking. Out of the Christian uh, Post, after more than twenty years at the helm, Todd Wagner, a senior pastor and co-founder of Watermark Community Church in Dallas, announced it wasn't yesterday. It was the Sunday before that he is temporarily stepping away from his pulpit due to the sin of pride. He said, for the first time in 20 years, I'm stepping back from what I usually do so I can do the hard work of hard work. Hmm. So don't be looking for some scandal. Don't even think this is scandalous. What is scandalous is when a Christian plays with, overlooks, or welcomes sin, respectable or not. Hmm. Wagner told his megachurch, which averages about 11,000 weekly worshipers over four campuses. He said, I think God. I have friends to help me. Pride kills. And I would call what I've heard from my friends describing and telling me pride. That's the sin. And it's really interesting because, you know, I don't think of myself or I fool myself uh, into, uh, into thinking that I'm not a prideful person because I never look in the mirror and clap. Uh, I need to take some of your time to ask. He said at the beginning to ask your forgiveness for several things uh, and he, he goes on to his sin of pride. He says, it's not paid leave so I can read or write or relax as a reward for 20 years of service. What it is, is a temporary rest from teaching and leading and anything else in the way of my letting the Lord strengthen me, restore me and lead me to daily greater repentance. And so uh, it was really interesting to see a guy of a huge church say, hey, I this isn't for, I didn't have an affair. I didn't steal money. I didn't do whatever. I, I'm just a prideful person. And Um, I'm interested to know your reaction to this because on the one hand, I'm like, man, that's awesome. That's great. That's like getting at some root sins here. And it's really impressive. On the other hand, to be honest with you, we've, like you said, we've done so many of these stories that I get cynical. So you're kind of like, yeah, what brought you to this point? What's the level of pride, you know, that we're putting under the umbrella of pride. What, what did somebody point out or others point out that, that we're putting under this umbrella? So I don't know. Uh, but pride is one of those root sins that that manifests itself in so much other stuff. And so, um, you know, on the one hand, I do think that there's something to be applauded here in any of our lives when we say, you know, what I'm going after pride. Like that's that's a uh, that's that's what to go after. That's the root sin. And so, uh, it is interesting. You don't normally hear pastors say, "I need to leave because I'm too prideful."
0: Yeah, he he goes on to say uh, that he got to a point in ministry where he was just not listening enough to his leadership team and failed to lead with, quote, the usual grace in my relationships with my closest friends. So he goes on, says, I've been short and irritable. I'm invalidating at times. I'm impatient enough that people were noticing a difference. And worse, I didn't hear them when they asked me and said things like, are you OK? Um which I, I actually really do appreciate. Maybe maybe I'm naive here. I That feels yeah. like a legitimate, hey, there's enough people that, you know, you said that you trusted asking the right pointed questions. I mean, and again, you know, I'm looking at this list. I'm like, man, I've been short and irritable like me and right. Simpkins. Like that's that's something that I've had to really kind of check in myself. And some of that I know is exacerbated by the pandemic or having little kids at home. I, I totally understand all that. But I. At least if I'm going to take it at first blush, I really appreciate yeah. that perspective. Not just – he could have just said, hey, I, I'm stepping away for mental health. Could yes. have said that. But to take the time on a Sunday and say, "Um, here's where I failed you. Here's where I need to confess. Here's where I need to apologize publicly to our leaders that have been trying really hard to correct this in me. And, I, yeah, I guess I, I just really appreciate him going what looks like above and beyond – to do the right thing. The other story that I want to tackle real quickly uh, is about Charles Stanley. Charles Stanley is stepping down after 50 years as pastor. What's going on with this one?
1: Yeah, this is really impressive. One quick thing about the pride one. There's even another story. Maybe we'll do another time. Link to the one we did from Christian Post. I didn't even realize John Piper took an eight month or so, no speaking, no writing, no nothing. And Mm -hmm. he said he needed to self-examine and deal with some things. And he said they all come from the pride that he has. So it's Uh interesting to see that as well. But Charles Stanley, uh, really interesting, age of 87, the longtime First Baptist Atlanta preacher, says he doesn't believe in retirement. But after 50 years as the pastor there, he is stepping down, uh, which is just fascinating. He said he became the First Baptist uh, associate pastor in 1969, and two years later, uh, he became the senior pastor. He said in in a video the other day, I'm so grateful God saw fit to allow me to serve as your pastor for more than 50 years. As much as I love being your pastor, I know in my heart this season has come to an end. He's going to keep focusing his energy on In Touch Ministries, which he founded in 1977. He says, as you know, I don't believe in retirement. I'll continue to preach the gospel as long as God allows. My goal remains the same, to get the truth of the gospel to as many people as possible as quickly as possible in the power of the Holy Spirit to the glory of God. So 87-year-old, man, he's been at the same church for 50 years. Uh, If you don't know, he's very famous in his own right, but he's the father of Andy Stanley, uh, Mm -hmm. if you know of Andy Stanley. Uh, But Charles Stanley stepping down after 50 years, but it's amazing at the age of 87 going, hey, I've finished well. He's handing it off to the assistant pastor of the church who's been there for a while, will now take over. But he's like, I don't believe in retirement, so I'm going to keep preaching, keep doing my thing. Uh, 87 years old, man, that's really impressive.
0: Well, and just to say it out loud too, uh, in touch ministries actually airs right here on AM 1160 right. Monday through Friday from 1230 to one. And then on Saturdays at two thirty AM and five 30 AM. And you're right. When I look at like 50 years, man, like that to me, I remember when I took over as lead pastor at Poplar, there was a guy who's still there, pastor Daryl Malcolm. He's been on the show, just an incredible, I mean, he's a, he's a wise leader and pastor, a good friend. Uh, I think it was a week or two after I was installed he and his wife celebrated 60 years of ministry and i remember oh, thinking what a what a perspective that was like i was still kind of shaking in my boots trying to pretend to you know know what i was doing so that i could instill maybe some confidence and like looking at the legacy of six long decades of some tough years but some beautiful years and at the very least i appreciated how this was done like i'm reading this the story here about uh, sort of his succession plan and his uh, challenge to the congregation here at the end. He says, I will do what I've encouraged all of you to do. I'm going to obey God and leave all the consequences to him. God bless you all. That, that to me has, has been, I think a lot of his legacy is just sort of this like cut to the point, simple, accessible type of biblical exhortation and, uh, and again, you know, I, I certainly don't agree theologically with everything he's ever said. But still, yeah, sure. something like that, though, I look and go, man, I, I, I hope we celebrate more stories like this. Because yes. in a time where, like you were saying, we've seen so many leaders, unfortunately, removed. Um, it's great to see after five decades someone, you know, transition well like this. And I think I think that is worth celebrating. Coming up yeah. next, two different articles. I want to talk a little bit about self-care. Self-care for leaders and self-care for all of us. That's coming up next here on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hey friends, welcome back to the common good for the last time today on this lovely Monday. One holiday that I did leave out, Brian, it's National Boss Employee Exchange Day. What does that mean?
1: I don't know. What are we exchanging? Is it like is it like
0: a <laughs> like a freaky Friday situation where like the boss becomes the employee and vice versa? Is that how that works? Oh,
1: maybe. I just want to know do I get a gift for that or I have to give a gift for that? Which what's what's the call here? It <laughs> all comes
0: down to gifts for, I don't know why I'm surprised yeah. every time. I knew I knew you were gonna make a comment about a gift. It's true. It's true. All right. So a couple of uh, articles about self-care, and uh, we might not have time to get to both of them. This first one about pivoting your self-care, I thought was really interesting. Uh, It says, my hope is that these ministry pivot articles have been helpful for you and your team as you work through this season. So, again, we're talking a lot about COVID throwing off a lot of our rhythms, a lot of the things. I I know there's probably two categories of people. One, people who had really strict rhythms that then had to, like, reestablish them because COVID threw everything for a loop. Two, people are like, I didn't really have rhythms to begin with, but because the pandemic has been so stressful, I'm having to adopt principles and rhythms for the first time. Either way, I thought these pivots were really helpful. Plus, as a gift, Brian, since I know you love gifts, it's a list. So, yes. uh, yeah, here we go. I'll just take number one here and uh, get your thoughts. Pivot number one, your time. In this season, you can't spend your time the same way. Since Sunday has shifted, many pastors I know are recording on other days. However, the majority of leaders I know have shifted their Sunday schedule. Such changes provide time for reflection about the other days of your week and how you spend those hours. For example, if your Sunday was normally spent in the building, but now you're home and the service is over, how are you taking advantage of that time? Maybe this means that you reorder your Sunday to be in worship with your family, but before or after the online service, you go for a run or a walk or a bike ride or something else that allows you to break from work. Not only should you take advantage of this, but also... Encourage your team to do the same as you look at your time, consider the meetings and sessions during the week. Can you consolidate or cancel altogether to allow yourself and your team to regroup whatever you do with your time? Just know that this season can be an opportunity to shift and take better care of yourself. Are you finding that to be an important shift for you at all, Brian?
1: Oh, absolutely. It's it's a double edge. Uh, it, It goes kind of both ways, because for some of us, it's been like, I don't know what to do with my time because it's changed here. It's telling us. Hey, be strategic about it. Take the shift that's happened in our time. And instead of going, I don't know what to do or wasting it, like make the changes that will kind of not just redeem this time, but make it the most profitable. So yeah, absolutely. I think that's a good one.
0: You want to take number two?
1: I will. Your family. Uh, Pivot number two, your family. If you're like me, you have a family with a calendar and schedule that could beat yours in competition. During the season of stay at home and the process of slowly reopening, all of our calendars have changed, and there's also a self-care opportunity here. One of the ways as leaders that we can replenish our cups is by spending time with the people we love and care about. Since this season began, my wife, daughter, and I have taken advantage of daily walks together, you've talked about that, Mm -hmm. Uh, at a certain time to give our five-year-old the outside time she needs and to give my wife and me the time we need. At first, I didn't realize it, but after a few days, I saw the major benefits of our conversations and our laughter that are a result of this newly formed family time. I also noticed that when I was with them and saw them happy, that made me happy. And so the self-care about family I think is a great one. A lot of people talking about family meals that they didn't have before that they're having now, mm-hmm. but being reminded that our family is, is kind of who we're closest to.
0: All right. Pivot number three, your rest. When I say rest here, I mean more than sleep. Rest and self-care is anything that gives you peace or enjoyment that isn't linked to, quote, real work. You know, real work consists of things that you don't always like to do, but you have to get done because you're an adult. (laughs) I I like that sentence. Things outside of the real work box, like running or working out, like writing and painting or even fixing up cars or remodeling rooms in the house. There are several activities that can be done to add to your rest and engage your sense of peace. I hope you get my main point that you need to do some things that are simply for you and that give you peace and rest in this season. Those activities should be on your self-care list and should be done on a rotation that continues to provide moments of rest and peace throughout your week. And it ends by saying, what things do you do for self-care? What would you add to the list? Who do you know that is really doing a great job of taking care of themselves in this season? I'd love to know, Brian, have you found... Rest activities. That sounds like almost an oxymoron. But are the things that you've taken up again that you haven't done in years, or like new hobbies or projects that are is kind of filling that rest bucket for you?
1: This one's going to sound so random because a lot of these are (laughs) like you said, hobbies and active. Besides, like I've kind of taken a new love of like yard work and stuff like that. we have these two chairs that are in the back. And my wife and I were just commenting the other day that we've spent more time in this this summer than probably the nine or 10 summers combined before just sitting like with a drink, talking, sitting in those chairs. And I don't know <laughs> what it is about now, but it has been the best. Like as the sun goes down, just sitting out back. And so just those reminders of like, hey, sometimes it's just good to sit in a chair and just kind of be and have a drink and talk. Uh, yeah, I've really enjoyed that.
0: Uh, when you say drink, I'm assuming you mean like water or –
1: I think you know me well enough to know that that is an unsweetened iced tea of some variety, whether it be Dunkin' Donuts or from my fridge. <laughs>
0: is it of the Long Island variety or
1: yeah. – uh, No, it is not. not it a, is not of the a... unsweetened variety, yeah. <laughs> All
0: right. So I, I had this other article. We're not going to have a ton of time to get to it, but uh, it's from the same source, outreachmagazine.org, self-care for leaders during a crisis. Um, have you found that there are certain leaders that you follow or listen to that have done a particularly good job of navigating like self-care and rhythms in the midst of crisis? Like, are, are there anybody like, like who would you recommend someone go read or listen to if, if you uh, if you have that?
1: Oh, that's a great question. Let me think about that while I say I think that you can tell online the people, whether they be pastors or ministry leaders or whatever, uh, who are uh, th- there's like this. Self confidence to them that allows them to go. Okay, I'm not going to try to do everything right now. I'm I'm going to, uh, I am going to just do what I can and take care of myself. It you know it's a big name, but it reminds me of the conversation we had about Andy Stanley when he talked about why his church isn't going to be meeting until he knew he was going to get killed for that. But he's just kind of like, I think this is right. We're doing the best we can, and we're going to take it. I think about Scott Sauls and the things he's written and that we've talked about. Uh, Guys go men and women saying, hey, you can only do so much. Uh, and you also need to take care of yourself anybody come to mind for you
0: yeah I think of John mark Comer. He, he's certainly someone that I think has done a great job not only in speaking consistently on on self-care and rhythms and rest but like that's sort of how they've built their entire church's infrastructure around these different practices and they have a they have a whole page dedicated to you know helping resource people to think through things like rest and sabbath that's uh bridgetown church is his church in Portland I highly recommend you check out Anything they do, it's it's remarkable. This this article here that I'm referencing to is referencing Nancy Cohn in her book "Forged in Crisis: The Power of Courageous Leadership in Turbulent Times," and uh, she was writing about how Abraham Lincoln was like a real worrier and dealt with anxiety and insomnia, and how you know he he wasn't eating well. And then it shows these photos from uh, 1860 to 1865, and it's remarkable how yeah. much he ages with every like passing fire, year because of the yeah. crisis he was facing like i I'd, I'd never actually seen those side by side like that
1: yeah it's you're right it is remarkable and it reminds you of every time a president goes through 8 years And they show the pictures like when Obama or President Bush and the amount that they've grayed and aged in just those 18 years. years. But yeah, these Lincoln pictures, that looks literally like 25 years, not five
0: years. It's remarkable. And she goes on to talk about the prophet Elijah and some of her instructions on how to actually navigate this well as uh, as a leader. And I think there's some really, really helpful uh, takeaways here. Again, this is posted on our Facebook page, but she talks about resting and eating, talks about gaining perspective says, be real and authentic, which I think is a really important part of self-care and uh, listen for God's voice. Those are just good sort of quick takeaways. But again, the full article is over on the Facebook page. I say all of that to say uh, it is really, really, really important. I'm saying that as someone who is really not very good at this self-care and making time for rest and Sabbath and downtime and enjoyment. Those things are really, really important. And I highly encourage you. Uh, to to put some specific time and energy towards figuring those things out if you haven't already because I think it's really helpful. That is the end of the show today. It's been a joy as always. We'll hope you join us again tomorrow from 4 to 6 p.m. For Brian Fromm, my name is Ian Simpkins and you, my friends, have been listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life.